HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. This week on a special Valentine's Day edition of Meet and 3, we put a twist on the lovey-dovey holiday. The mission statement is save the world through silliness and chocolate, and in parentheses, launch a chocolate bar into outer space. But I'm having um, some conflict on the board members with the parentheses. That's okay. He cited that in his area there used to be 30 dairy farms and now there are three. You know, dessert was political, and what you had on the dessert table said more about you than other markers of success. Tune in to Meet in 3, HRN's weekly food news and storytelling roundup wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum, and I love to talk with people about what they do and how it influences their personal food stories. This is a show about people, life, and food. If you're just tuning in for the first time, all the previous episodes of Feast Your Ears can be found in the archives at heritageradionetwork.org. I'm thankful for listeners like you, and I'd love it if you'd leave me a review wherever you find this podcast. Today's theme, how to cook a carrot. Peter Hertzman's new book, 50 Ways to Cook a Carrot, presents the humble carrot at the center of a book about how to cook, not just how to cook a carrot. I called Peter up to talk about the book and an upcoming event at the 92nd Street Y here in New York. Hope you like it. Thanks, Peter, for for joining me today uh, on Feast Your Ears. Um, You know, today I I would love to talk about your new book, um, which was came out first in the UK last year. And then has just been released uh, just about two weeks ago, right here in the United States. Fifty ways to cook a yeah, carrot. Whenever uh, January fifteenth was. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I mean, you've you've written a lot of books. You've written a lot of different things. You've written a lot about cooking. Um, tell me about fifty ways to cook a carrot. Like, how did how did it come about, and why why fifty ways to cook a carrot? Okay, there's uh, sort of two. Uh, avenues to follow here. One is the direct of how it came about, and the other is why it came about. Yep. So let's do the direct first. Sure. So there's an exercise I do that works best with either chefs or uh, advanced students in some sort of uh, professional cooking program where I ask them to choose an ingredient, something that is uh, 
a general ingredient, you know, like onions or um, potatoes or meat, you know, beef or something like that, not, sure. uh, you know, yak milk right. or you know, <laughs> right. things, things that are hard to get a hold of expensive and uh, fairly limited in scope. And just to quickly think of 10 ways to cook that, and which 10 separate ways. So, you know, with a red sauce or with a white saucer, that's only one way. It's with a sauce. Sure. Uh, and the reality is it has turned out that for most of them, uh, you know, when you work rapidly, they get about five and they get stuck. Hmm. And so one day I said, well, Maybe I'll do it to myself, you know, it's a doctor heal thyself. And I did it. I picked a carrot and I picked a carrot because they're cheap, yep. uh, readily available, uh, multiple forms. Uh, you know, it's just a, a good thing to start with. And I came up with 104 ways to cook the carrot. Now I took four hours to do that. I should admit. Yeah. <laughs> so, it wasn't quite the same test. Yeah, longer, longer uh, exercise in your in your case. Yes, uh, it filled a Saturday afternoon. So I took that and I said, "Okay, here's these 104 ways. Are some of these too similar?" And, and I decided that all the pickling should be a single method mm. rather than individual methods. So the lactic acid fermentation and um, uh, uh, vinegar fermentation. Sure or all one method. Okay. And like that, when I did that and got rid of some really outliers, I got then about 57, I wrote a book proposal. And uh, my agent was initially skeptical, but he tried a couple of the methods that were uh, in the proposal and they all turned out really good. And he goes, wow, I gotta sell this. And he goes out energetically trying to sell it and it fell totally flat. There wasn't a single, <laughs> Bite. Not, not even people saying, well, let's talk about it some more. It was just pure reject all the way through. And so it went on the shelf, and I continued to do my usual things. And last uh, summer, is it, no, actually now it would be two summers ago, so that would be 2018. I was at the Oxford Symposium on Food and Cookery. Uh, there is the publisher Prospect Books is always there selling books. There's sort of... Um, unique uh, imprint and it's mostly books on culinary history. They have one book that would be considered a normal cookbook and everything else. And generally they're black and white and very good quality books, but in a very limited subject. Mm. And I was talking with the publisher there and she said, well, you know, send me a proposal. And I said, yeah, I'll do that. And, and my interest was maybe just to get the, the concept out no pictures, black and white. Just, I wanted to get it in a couple libraries just so, you know, 100 years from now, somebody could look back and say, yeah, this guy tried to do this. Sure. And uh, so in October, we came to an agreement. Uh, unlike, you know, a normal book contract, it's things like one paragraph. <laughs> it's really uh, very informal. Uh, so that was 2018, October 1st. I, sent the manuscript in on February 1st, 2019. I got an uh, email back. Well, she's been talking with some of her salesmen, and they think there should be some color pictures in there. I go, oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> so this is being done. No, you know, there's no advance or anything. Right. It's on my own dime. Uh, 
And uh, so I wound up, you know, I do have the experience of doing that. So I set up a studio in my dining room in my little apartment here and uh, shot a bunch of stuff and sent it out to her. And uh, uh, thing went out to the printer and, and on July, early July in uh, Oxford, it was released. And so that's sort of the, the history of the book. Now, that's, so that's one thing. That's sort of the nuts and bolts of what, what happened. But a number of years ago, I, and I should probably give you some background. So I taught at places like Surlitab, you know, these recreational classes for 10 years, uh, initially using my own recipes. And eventually one of the reasons I left was because I had to use their recipes mm. and really were not, uh, I didn't feel they were of good quality. Uh, but I also taught at for 10 years, uh, mostly knife skills, but some cooking at uh, a job training center. And then five of those years, I taught two days a week in the county jail in the minimum security area, just general cooking. And what I came out of that was I, I felt that the modern professional cooking programs were going about it wrong. Uh, I should also add that I learned my cooking working in restaurants in France and Switzerland. Uh, And so I don't have the professional training that a lot of these that I'm actually railing against or railing against. And uh, so I wrote a paper for uh, a meeting in Oxford. And what it was, I proposed a new curriculum for uh, professional cooking schools. It was actually a framework for a curriculum. And what it does, it breaks down training into three areas. The first being understanding ingredients, the second being understanding methods, and the third being preparing the the classical dishes from all different cuisines, not just French, but Chinese and Japanese and things, to begin to understand how these dishes evolved over time. Mm. Uh, just because I have a different method doesn't mean I don't think you should ever make, you know, a beef bourguignon or a sukiyaki. I think those are, you know, I do that myself. (laughs) You know, I would, but understanding them, because this also came from a couple of recipes that I actually tracked the history, like Blanc Manger, which is now done as a dessert, was originally a, uh, a porridge essentially made out of almond milk for mm. invalids. Uh, this, you know, boiled beef, the French version of boiled beef, and how that changed through right. time. A uh, sauce Robert. Those sort of things where I, I have access to the historical documents. Even something like macaroni and cheese, the 18th century recipes are so much better than modern ones. It's really amazing. <laughs> But let's you know, talk. Let's talk about that for a involved. second. What what makes so, so let, let me, better? So let, let me finish. Well, <laughs> sure. we'll get back to that. Okay? We'll come back so to it. We'll, I'll put a pin in macaroni. I, think I, I digress easily, yeah. obviously. <laughs> and what happens in the mid '90s? The books change and being um, more. You know, there's head notes coming in, and we have the uh, you know the feeling of the teacher now standing next to us in the kitchen and. Uh, better pictures and all that stuff. And the recipes begin to dominate over methods. And um, that's what people now think. You know, that's what I learned from the Sir Todd classes was people thought they had to learn 
a recipe and you'd come back and you teach somebody a recipe for uh, I don't know, spaghetti with meat sauce and see them the next week saying, well, did you try it yet? No, I couldn't do it. I didn't have that, you know, pincho dried thyme. I right. Did for it. <laughs> right. Yeah. Or, or I needed to buy a medium yeah. saucepan. Well, that's the, the whole communication <laughs> thing is, and how big is a medium yeah. there? You know, if you look at, uh, you know, we could have a whole conversation just on all the indeterminate adjectives that have been added to recipes since about 1990. And I've had discussions with recipe coaches who insist these are very important things. And you know, I just get totally frustrated by it because like you said, you know, medium saucepan, which rising up the wall even more is, you know, you're baking something yeah, three fifty oven, thirty minutes. Yeah. Okay. Well, first of all, the likelihood of that person's oven being three fifty is fairly low. Yep. Yeah, because of calibration issues, and then it depends on where they're put in the oven. It depends on the type of oven. It depends on how they're shading things. There's all these different things that affect it, and uh, you know, is the pan the same as the recipe was tested in? And yeah, yeah, you know, it's rather than saying. You know, cooking till it's done, right. and describing what the how it should be when it's done. Yep. Yeah. So you're okay. So now you asked another question, and I said, "Put off." <laughs> I don't remember what it is. Now. So, so we got, so we got to the, we got to the, uh, you know, the how the book came about. Yeah. Um, and so, and, and so I mean, and, and I guess the the thing that I was sort of, you know trying to get to is like what is the you know so 50 ways to cook a carrot accomplishes kind of i guess putting out there in the world this methodology that you use to teach people how to cook as a way to think about the ingredient that they're using and what can be done with it mm -hmm. right? and it's and when as soon as you choose an item you also then limit yourself because there's a lot of methods i could use on other types of ingredients that wouldn't work on a carrot. So the, the first thing when you, when you do a process like this is you have to understand the ingredient you're working with. Carrots are uh, very high in pectin, uh, which means that making jams or anything of that nature become just, you know, really simple because they sure. thicken beautifully. Yeah. Uh, they are um, the cellulose in, in carrots is really strong, and so even when you grind it, you know, put it in a like a Vitamix, which should puree the hell out of it, uh, you can still perceive uh, bits on the tongue. Right. So it means that for some some things you're going to have to use filtering techniques and, and stuff. Uh, it comes in. Uh, you know, a multitude of forms nowadays. So that may or may, may not make an issue. One of the things I did in the book is I use a lot of uh, what a lot of people would consider waste products. So when you give somebody normally a carrot, they only think of that in its solid form. So yeah. when I juiced it, that produces, you get maybe about 50% yield out of a carrot juice and the other 50% goes out the back of the machine in the form of a sort of a finely grated carrot 
and rather than throw that away, I used it for things that became the basis for some carrot cakes and things like that. But also I dried it, ground it and made carrot powder. Yeah, and the carrot powder gets, gets used in, um, along with starch in order to make uh, crackers or to make uh, pasta, things of that nature. It also turned out uh, one day, I, you know, these thoughts come to me usually when I wake up in the morning, uh, to make, instead of macaroni and cheese, macaroni and carrot. Uh. <laughs> and so I used essentially the recipe off the side of the blue craft box <laughs> And when it came to putting in the you know orange powder, right. I substituted with my orange powder, and it actually it has a very you know it's not a cheese flavor, but sure. it's a very nice flavor, yeah, and uh, it's very good. So a lot of it's plain. A lot right. of it, you know, it's like making uh, tokoroten, which you're familiar with, yeah. uh, out of carrot juice is you know would be you know probably uh, leave a few <laughs> Japanese cooks. Uh, fainting on the floor, but uh, it actually works out quite nice. Yeah. I mean, I, I love the idea of really using a, a simple ingredient like that to focus. I think carrot was a, was a really good choice for that um, because they're, they are ubiquitous, but I think most people, you know, they see a carrot, they're like, okay, it's something I can eat raw or it's something I can put into soup. And they don't mm -hmm. get much beyond that. Um, and then I think the idea of taking that and then applying it certainly in a class situation, um, you know, to other, you know, to other ingredients. So you have a class coming up in March, uh, on the 18th at the 92nd street Y and will that follow that sort of format? Will you use carrots or are you going to use, is that, will that be kind of, will, will you present something to the group who then have to come up with methods? Uh, well, I can, so the, the class, I, I teach a class like this in two parts. Uh, the first part is the exercise. So they have to come up with the ingredient. Mm. And it's always then becomes a challenge because I don't know what the ingredient is <laughs> right. going to be. And But it then, as a group, the idea is to think about all these different ways. So when I did this in um, out in Brighton in England uh, to a group of chefs, the first ingredient we worked with was a potato. And so with a potato, you know, what do you have in a potato? You have lots of starch. Yep. So what are all the different things you can do with starch? You know, right. you can make uh, all these, you know, Southeast Asian style noodles, for instance. Uh, you know, just as a sort of, you know, thing that came to mind. Yeah. And, you know, you could see people's, uh, you know, it's almost like, it was it was a, a cartoon, you know, all these light bulbs going off on top of people's heads. And it was amazing some of the things that were proposed. And that's before you get into, you know, start throwing in some of the modernist ingredients. The only two that I actually use uh, a lot in mine is the xanthan gum, which is I love as a thickener, and uh, either agar or uh, gelatin, depending on whether I want it hot or cold and yep. things. The agar is easier to work with than the gelatin. Unfortunately, I no longer have access to sheet gelatin, which I really love working with. And the powdered stuff is a real pain mm. with some small quantities. Uh, but, you know, people don't think of like an onion, okay? So it turns out an onion actually has a fair amount of sugar in it. Right. 
And once you eliminate the acid from it, it gets to be quite sweet. Yeah. You know, they think sweet onions mean they have more sugar. Actually, sweet onion means it has less acid. Right. Uh, sure. And, uh, but you can juice an onion and you can take that onion, you make a syrup out of it. Yeah. And in the classical way that you make uh, maple syrup, just boil it down. And that's so, like in the carrot book, there's two different ways of making syrups. There's the classical boil it down, which in the process, it goes from being orange to a brown color because of oxidation. Right. And it takes on, you know, these caramel sort of colors. Yep. The other way is the 19th century French method, uh, which the best writing on that was actually in uh, the 1938 uh, La Rose Gastronomique which is a great English translation of from 64. There's like five pages of syrups in there made of huh. all different ingredients. And most of them are essentially a flavored simple syrup. Right. So if you do lemon juice, lemon juice usually is too strong to make into a simple syrup by itself. So you water it down. Um, and the order may be 40, 60 with water and that is mixed one-to-one by weight with sugar. Got it. And you cook it till the sugar dissolves. And you have a shelf-stable syrup that'll last for, you know, I have some that's, because I've made too much of it, it's like 10 years old still. Sure. Uh, but, you know, and so like this, uh, I was given uh, 10 pounds of persimmons, uh, the fuyu, uh, the harder persimmons yep. um, at Christmas. And I don't have space for 10 pounds, right. so I, right. that afternoon I canceled all appointments and made jam. Yeah. Well, the jam produced also a lot of extra juice, oh. and so that I made into syrup. Yep. Yeah. Carrots are 4.5% sugar. Maple juice is 1% sugar. It right. takes a lot less carrot juice to make syrup than it does to... Uh, with maples. Yeah, I saw so, that. I, n- I noticed that in in, the, in your book when you talked about the boiling it down like maple, and I had never really thought yeah. about that, right? I mean, you know, sure. I mean, the sap coming out of maple trees that in, in places, especially where, you know, especially in New England and into Canada, it's going to start very soon. I've seen some maple, you know, maple taps out already. Um, mm-hmm. You know, that stuff that comes out is, is barely sweet if you taste it, and it takes an incredible amount of boiling <laughs> to make it into syrup. And in the old days, before they, they piped it to a central location, you know, when they had a, the buckets out yep. under each tree, it was incredibly dirty also. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, full of bugs and all sorts of stuff that had to be uh, extricated from it. Uh, now it becomes a, a matter of forging and uh, theft and yeah. <laughs> all sorts of other issues. <laughs> yeah, did Smuggling. you? Yeah, there was a great article some years ago about the guys who stole thousands of gallons of maple syrup i feel like that's a quite a quite a difficult heist messy and sticky as well yes this episode is brought to you by roberta's home of heritage radio network for 10 years Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. 
Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. People don't think about things like, you know, it's like there's candied carrots in there, and that's a direct, you know, offshoot from doing candied uh, ginger, right? Yeah, that type of thing. Uh, The carrot pastry cream. Sure. Um, So, in in writing the book, do you have? Did you come up like? Do you have a favorite way to cook carrots now? uh, If I'm, you know, using them by themselves. Uh, I would say roasting, yeah. but then I like roast vegetables, so sure. that's you know sort of a no-brainer. Yep, and it takes the least amount of work and happens the fastest. Yeah, uh, I, I really like uh, you know uh, nice caramelized carrots, but that's uh, you know low temperature for an hour. Yeah, yeah, it takes a lot longer, and it's a lot, a lot yeah. more a lot more watching. The roasting is certainly. Yeah, I feel like it with a but lot of I, vegetables, I, roasting is the best bang for the buck. Mm-hmm in terms of like mm. input time versus output you know, quality. But I like uh, carrot syrup. Yeah, I mean, I, I like that you go into fermentation. Um, you know, there was a, a, uh, a moment, gosh, it must have been back in like 2009, maybe. So like 11 years ago, um, there was a, a, a carrot disaster in Brooklyn where uh, I saw someone post on Twitter a photograph of a truck that was carrying pallets full of carrots that had overturned. And there were just carrot, you know, 50-pound bags of carrots. I think they were actually from Quebec. It was sometime around this time of year, maybe a little bit later into February. And I went down there, and the truck had been taken away by a tow truck, but there were, I mean, there were thousands of pounds of carrots just on the sidewalk. Mm-hmm. And so I threw a couple in my in my van. I thought, well, sure, I'll take, you know, 150 pounds of carrots. Why not? And then, of course, I had them sitting. This is when we had the Brooklyn Kitchen. I had them sitting in the walk-in. And I was like, what are we going to do with all these carrots? I mean, it's a lot of carrots. And so what I ended up doing was grating most of them and fermenting them um, because I needed to preserve them somehow. And then that led into uh, a, a dish that I had it, or sort of reminded me of or, you know, figured out that I could use it in this sort of Bulgarian dish that calls for cooking uh, chicken with sauerkraut, but I used fermented carrots instead. And that has become kind of like a staple dish in our house um, is to, you know, to grate carrots and ferment them like sauerkraut and then mm-hmm. cook, you know, ro- basically you you roast chicken on top of fermented carrots. Well, just as an aside, I'm giving a paper and tour uh, in June on the social history of sauerkraut. Huh. Uh, 
Yeah, so and one of the things I'm trying to do in this book is to simplify this. So fermentation is a great example. Uh, in the proposal, I had written a, a more extensive um, about fermentation, but still compared to, you know, uh, books that are out on the market now on fermentation where they're, you know, 500-page tomes, uh, I got it down to a couple pages. Right. And it that came from my personal history in things like trying to make sauerkraut or the first time I tried yeah, you know, one of my favorite drinks is a Gibson, and that requires a you know a pickled onion in it. Yep. And so I decided I was wanted to learn how you know rather than buy these things I didn't like the ones I was buying, I wanted to make my own. And I started looking for all these you know vinegar pickled uh, recipes, and there was so many you know things, you know stand on one foot and tickle your left ear and all these other <laughs> steps that never made sense to me. And it turned out to do this, all you got to do is equal parts vinegar and sugar, bring it to a boil, throw the onions in, and stick it in, you know, set it aside, yep. bottle it. Yeah. That's it. You don't got to do anything else. Right. Yeah, you can write it in, you know, one sentence, yeah. essentially. <laughs> and maybe two of you want to tell people to wash the lids on their uh, mason jars or something. <laughs> And that's all it takes. And it doesn't take all this other detail to do it. And I see this in, you know, so many recipes nowadays. I remember we had one at Sur Top where we're doing a, um, just like a pie crust, a pastry crust. Yep. And this thing was two full pages, single spaced of TypeScript. Wow. And, you know, and they got in trouble because I would teach it and I would just say, you need this much butter, you need about this much flour, take your fingers, you know, do this with them, and you got to, you know, set it you know, aside to uh, hydrate, and you'll be fine. Yeah. You know, oh, no, you got to, you know, what if this doesn't happen? What if, well, but all this stuff isn't happen, is happening or all these mistakes are happening because all these other extra steps have been added to it. Right. I mean, I, I made pie crust yesterday, and it was, I mean, I just used the three to one ratio. I use 12 ounces mm-hmm. of flour and eight ounces of butter and four ounces of water and a pinch of salt. And it worked out great. <laughs> yeah. You know? Well, we used to do that in the jail, you know, in the jail because we wanted to make pie crust and, you know, we didn't have any, you know, uh, a Roboku or whatever <laughs> to do it in. We yeah. didn't have all this other fancy stuff. And, you know, a bowl, we had the flour and, and, uh, you know, a crude scale, uh, to do things with. And lots of hands. And yep. so, you know, with people with time on their hands, even. Uh, <laughs> Literally. <laughs> yeah. And it, it always came out great. Yep. And it didn't take lots of uh, fancy instructions. You know, yeah. this is when you, you know, learn from mom. Uh, well, I would say when you learn from, because I didn't learn from my mom. I learned, you know, my sharing with my mother is, you know, she shared her cigarettes with me. Right. But, <laughs> well, you know, learn from, you people learn from their parents. It wasn't like all these different, you know, things. It was, you know, hold the spoon and do this. Yep. Right? Uh, it wasn't all sorts of mystic type of stuff. And so what you learn is how to hold it, you know, you learn how to do things more by sight. You learn how to, do things by feel what the endpoints are um 
you learn when you're making a you know some sort of custard pie that it's done when the center is not quite yet cooked you know yep. you learn you know stuff like that and it's not sticking a knife in it or so many minutes or any of that type of thing uh um, I know that in in your classes, um, you also often go over common cooking misconceptions, which I feel like is where this conversation is sort of sort of headed. Um, can you tell well, me? Well, so we we went. I, let me get into that. Yeah. So uh, the second half of the ninety second Street Y class is the two hour class. So the first hour or so, maybe a little less, will be you know pick a method, or pick a degree in the spirit, uh, an ingredient. Yes. Back up. Well, the first hour will be uh, pick an ingredient. The second hour is going to be just presentation, and which is always a hard thing to try to sell a class where you say, okay, I'm going to teach a cooking class, and we'll do no cooking, and there'll be no food to eat. <laughs> right. But, but, but as you pointed out in our, in our communication before this interview, you can actually cover way more ground if you're not standing oh, yeah. over a stove. You can impart way more knowledge to people, I think, in a presentation. Yeah. Oh, you, you certainly can. The, so the second half is I'm going to take a subset of the 50 methods and go into more detail. The, things like braising, where I, I want to go into the history of braising, um, mm. because it is one of the earliest methods that was used. And it's a method that's misunderstood by a lot of people because you see so many recipes called braise, and then the last step before they start cooking is to cover the whole thing with liquid. Uh, sure. the, the classic uh, hearth cooking of meat uh, was done with little or no liquid mm. and uh, just put in, you know, you know what nowadays would be a low oven temperature, but, you know, next to the fire. Right. And you come back in four hours and everything's cooked and it's tender and there's lots of liquid because the meat, when it shrinks, you know, gives up water. So it's getting into all the – it's – Talking about the methods is important. Well, if you think back to when Jeff Smith had the Frugal Gourmet TV program, mm -hmm. uh, he would demonstrate like 30 dishes in a half an hour. Yep. Now, the reality is none of them were ever cooked all the way. Yeah. <laughs> you know, sure. I wouldn't want to eat any of the, the stuff that he did. Right. But the idea is, is you can demonstrate you know, very quickly how to cook a dish when you get into these modern classes now where everybody has to participate and everybody has to cook every dish, you're limited to very simple things yep. uh, that have uh, uh, can be done very quickly because also in most schools, if it's tied in with the store, you got to have time set aside to spend money in the store. You have to have time set aside to eat it. So we got to the point at Throw Todd where we would do all the prep Everything was cut. And the people complain, why didn't you get to cut, you know, an onion? And I would give the example of the day we, when we had people still cutting and this one person was supposed to cut one onion an hour later had not finished, <laughs> but was swearing at us if we took it away, you know? So like the whole class was dependent on her finishing this onion, right. which she wasn't finishing because she was spending most of her time talking to her friend, right. you know? Uh, yeah, you could do a lot more by uh, in, in demonstration. Yeah, people think that in a hands-on situation they're getting hands-on training, 
but the reality is, in most cases, you have one instructor for 16 people, and they're doing it, and there's very little sort of hands-on uh, training. You know, there's the sort of stuff that I got in, you know, working in restaurants. Now, some things I was, I was a skilled Chinese cook, but not a Western cook uh, when I started doing this. So I knew how to do, you know, cutting and, and things quite well. But all the other stuff, you know, somebody had to show me. Right. But luckily, you only had to show me once, and then yep. I could go do it. Yep. And it also provided an opportunity. I remember one summer, I was shucking scallops, you know, a thing you can do in Europe, but don't get to do in the United States because they come pre-shucked all the time. Except for, uh, except for Massachusetts. And here in the Northeast, if you're lucky enough to get them out of Massachusetts, you can get them full and whole in the shell. Well, that's great because then you get the coral and you can do yep. stuff with that. But you can't get them from, uh, you can't get them from Jersey or anywhere else along the coast. They have to get shucked on the boat. Yeah, and I don't know. Was, there must be some law or something that. Uh, yeah, I forget the reasoning behind it. it. I mean, some something like that. Anyway, so you said you were you were shucking. yeah. So anyway, so I learned three different methods from you know never from the chef. It's always the other line cooks you know yeah. learning from, and but in each restaurant, this was their approved accepted way of doing it and it was the best right. and they're all different right so and i, you know, and I bet they all the, yield the scallop out of the shell at the end right oh yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> their the one though was what really made it different was uh this he never used the scallops on the same day they were shucked huh. and he, he let them go through rigor yeah and they were you know a scallop has sort of an angled side to it yeah and he would put these in a hotel pan, two of them together, pushing against each other so they would straighten up and become more cylindrical. Huh. And that's how they rested overnight. Interesting. And um, it was a really interesting technique, And but you can't do it if you get your scallops in a jar. Right. <laughs> it doesn't work, it's too late. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but that's the sort of stuff, you know, I, I've written about this also, the, the the secret handshakes, you know, mm. why so much of this stuff is so easier to do in a restaurant than uh, uh, at home because, of, you know, the, you know restaurant team can use the secret handshake to, to do things. And what I'm finding funny is uh, last, oh, Friday night I was at a restaurant, a brand new restaurant here in San Francisco, and it's an open kitchen, and I was watching some of these young cooks uh, doing some prep and it's like I wanted to jump over and say, you know, there's a much easier way of doing what you're doing. <laughs> yeah. um, well, Peter, it's been it's always a real pleasure to get to catch up with you. Um, so people should check out uh, your upcoming class at the 92nd Street Y called How to Cook Anything with Ease. It's on March 18th. Um, and, uh, you know, they can also find out more about you and your writing and your work at Hertzman.com. Uh, it's H-E-R-T-Z-M-A-N-N. Um, and they can pick up 50 ways to cook a carrot, you know, I guess, uh, either on Amazon or wherever books are sold, as they say. Yeah, actually, if you go to Hertzman.com, there's a little square in the bottom where you can click on it, which has my little blurb I've written about the book. And it lists a number of ways uh, to get it. Because uh, I find a lot of times you can go to AVE Books and get it cheaper. Hmm. Uh, new ones, even cheaper. But sure. Yeah, I shouldn't recommend this, but, you know, 
there's lots of used ones out there also. (laughs) (laughs) I don't, I don't get my, you know, my royalty, which I'm hoping, you know, someday I'll have enough royalties from this book to pay my expenses of taking the pictures. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Right. To cover the carrots used in creating the book. Yeah. Well, well, one of the reasons I chose carrots is in quantity, I own 60 cents a pound. Right. Of course. Yeah. Much better than writing a book on scallops. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Well, like I said, it's been, it's been great to speak with you uh, and it's always fun to, fun to catch up and thanks for coming on Feast Your Ears. Thanks for listening to Feast Your Ears today. To find out more about 50 Ways to Cook a Carrot and Peter Hertzman, check out Hertzman.com. You can find Feast Your Ears as well as lots of other great shows at HeritageRadioNetwork.org, on iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please reach out to me if you have any questions. You can reach me via email, harry at thebrooklynkitchen.com, and you can follow me on Instagram, at thefoodballer. Talk to you next week. Feast Your Ears is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter, at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.